Good morning, friends. And happy Mother's Day. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 John. And as we come to 1 John, I have a question. Do you have a birth story you'd like to tell today? I know last week we were practicing the back and forth, but a whole story I don't think I can take here. But the birth of a child, the birth of a child, um, sometimes that is wrought with with tragedy. Um, And we need to be sensitive to those times and and grieve with those who mourn. Um, But for those others, as we welcome children into this world, it's a momentous and um, memorable day. And the more and more I'm around um, young moms, I realize there's a lot of stories around birth stories. And so do you have a birth story? Um, Us dads don't usually always tell the details and we'll get them mixed up. But here's how I remember the birth of my children. Um, My wife and I made it through Y2K with all of its um, lackluster there. And in March, we welcomed the birth of our firstborn son. I got a call while I was teaching school saying, hey, my wife's been on bed rest. It's go time. They're going to induce. And I thought it would be an easy process. And... (laughs) 24 hours later, four epidurals later, uh, a C-section, my wife exhausted and drugged, Um, we welcomed our firstborn son into the world, Nathan. My second son was a scheduled C-section. I had just graduated seminary. Um, They were going to take him at 38 weeks of gestation. Um, We were hanging around in Massachusetts. When he was born, he was 10 pounds at birth. 38 weeks. He's now six foot four and towering over us all. I put my family of four into a car five days later and moved to Richmond to begin a youth ministry position. Yeah, that one always gets Misty Perneau up there. She hates, she, she still holds grudges against me for that. We, we put my wife in the car, packed pillows around, and we just drove just to get there, to get to family. My third son was another C, scheduled C-section, much more calm. Um, I remember watching the Red Sox-Yankees game that day in the hospital room. The Red Sox won 7-3. <laughs> the mishap on that day is that they still like, would take the babies away and put them in a room while we were like, recovering. And I took some friends from church to the viewing room and pointed to the wrong kid. Um, Sorry, Levi. 2006, the shop is closed, but we do feel, I I felt like our family was not done. I started praying. I thought, well, the only way I'm going to get a girl is just going to pray a girl into my family. We're going to adopt a girl into our family. Started praying in 2006, not telling my wife this, um, and six or seven months later, um, we welcomed three girls into our family. God answers prayers triply. So there's our birth stories. Do you have a birth story? Jesus tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is not just being born, this is being born again to be able to see the kingdom of God. And this is a conversation that he had with a Pharisee late one night. Nicodemus, whose name means victory of the people, Nike, victory, and demos, people, 
demographics, democracy, it's of the people, about people. Nicodemus, meaning victory of the people, was earnest in his attraction to Jesus, his teaching, to his ministry. He wanted to go see Jesus, but he didn't want to be out in the public on view, so he went to him one, one day by night. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Because Jesus said you have to be born again. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. So as we recount our birth stories of our children, grandchildren, um, I can tell you the story of how I was born, emergency C-section. But the better story is, how are we born again? John always writes with this birth language in his gospel to recount the life and ministry of Jesus. Do you remember in the prologue? But to all who did receive him, and that's the word, that's the light, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be in the family of God, we must be born of God. John writes with birth and family language in this letter, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. Beloved, as we just read together, let us not love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Those who are born of God are loved by God as children. So to be in God's family, you must be born of God. And if you're born of God, you are one of God's children. Now for this religious man, whose name means victory, he didn't get it. What does this mean to be born again? And if he couldn't understand it, who was a Pharisee who understood the scriptures, how are we going to get this? It's because it's a spiritual truth. We must be born of God's will. We must be born of the Spirit. Truly, truly, Jesus tells us, unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Nathan, Roman, Kenna, Kalen, Levi, and Taylor didn't choose to be in my family. We chose them. I didn't pick them out, but we chose to give birth and to adopt. And so it is with God's family. We are born into God's family by God's love according to God's will. James 1.18 says this, Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so the question I hope you're asking yourself is, am I in God's family and how can I know? If this is God's will, how can I know I'm in God's family? Can I know for sure? Come with me to 1 John chapter 5. Today we'll be in the first five verses. It 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God? Man, such simple words. And it sounds so true and right, and yet it's so deep. It's so simple, and yet so much there for us to consider for life and everyday discipleship after our Lord. The Apostle John was an older man when he's writing this letter. He's caring for the church. He's seen most all of his friends be either martyred or killed. He writes as a spiritual father to the church. He's giving them instruction about false teachings that have come into the church and, and false teachers that have gone out. He's giving them encouragement in the faith. But Derek, am I in God's family? How can I know for sure? And so in this letter, John has given us three marks of assurance. And in previous sermons, I've kind of called them tests. But allow me to like shift the language a bit. Instead of calling them tests of our assurance, I'm going to call them birthmarks or marks of our assurance. What's a birthmark? It's something you have when you're born with. My brother has a birthmark on his foot. Some of you remember from the 80s, you remember like Mikhail Gorbachev, like had a birthmark on his forehead. It's something you're, you're born with that identifies, that's unique to you. What are the birthmarks of those in God's family? Our faith, what we believe, our beliefs. Chapter 2, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What we believe will show whether we're in the family of God. Our beliefs. What we believe. Faith. Mark number one. Mark number two is our life. How we live. Our ethics. Our morality. Just our practical theology. How we live this out. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter two. Chapter three. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Second mark is our life, our ethics, morality, how we live. The third mark is our love, how we relate, our relationships to God and to one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And the verse that was on my wedding ring I think it's now rubbed off. I checked it the other day. We love because he first loved us. Our faith in life must match up or else we are playing church and are just a bunch of hypocrites. If we say we believe this but live like this, we are hypocrites and we're just playing church. But if we say that we have look at our faith and look at our life and we have not love, we have nothing. We've done nothing. 
Love holds everything together in perfect harmony. And it's actually our love for one another that will show the world that we are his disciples. Look at this, these first five verses in chapter 5. Do you see that he's now bringing this together, showing that these marks of assurance are all here in summary? Our faith, what we believe, our faith are there in verses 1, 4, and 5, are living, obey the commandments, keep the commandments, or in verses 2 and 3, our love are in verses 1, 2, and 3. He's putting it all together. They are all intertwined. They are not independent. But too often, we are going to separate these out. Back when we used to have things called Christian bookstores, before we like just to shop everything online and give Amazon all of our business, there was Lifeway Christian Store, and there was Family Bookstore on the other side of town. You could go into a bookstore, but there would be different sections. There would be like the theology and Bible reference section. Then you'd go over here to the Christian living section. Then you'd go over here to marriage and family. <coughs> Separated. When I went to seminary, there were departments for theology or biblical studies, departments or professors who would teach ethics. Then there were professors who would teach pastoral ministry. And I would ask, these need focus, but have we so separated that we're living these trisected lives? We either have head knowledge, we'll have emotional maturity, we'll have good relational connections, but are they all intertwined? Or are we all just, we'll take pride in what we know, or we'll just take pride in kind of how we relate to people and kind of understanding ourselves or what we do for others. This is a danger for us in discipleship to become so trisected. I would say also that when our head knowledge exceeds our emotional or relational maturity, that's sometimes when we're the most dangerous in a church. When we think we know it all, but yet we don't know how to care or love or relate to others, understand ourselves. This approach has led to different churches. There's churches that are more doctrinally precise, educational, academic feeling. There are churches that are going to be more socially activist. Let's get out and do something. And there's going to be churches that are going to be more charismatic, experiential, like the feelings. So sometimes we just land wherever we feel like with one of these. And John is saying these are together. What we believe, how we live, and how we love is all together. We are to be disciples of Jesus with our hand, our heart, and our hands. Our head, our heart, and our hands. This is how he speaks of knowing and following Jesus. Who is the one who knows Jesus, who follows Jesus, who loves Jesus? Verse 1. Everyone who has been born of God. Everyone believes something of Jesus if they've heard his name. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the biggest question I think you'll answer in your entire life. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a man in history? Perhaps a noble teacher? An inspirational example? A good teacher? 
That's what the secularists would say. They would even give him historical credence as just being a figure in history. Is that all? Is he a prophet, a messenger from God? That's what Muslims will at least give Jesus. Is he the firstborn of creation with maybe even derivative divinity? divinity? Like he, he has derivative deity. That's what Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would say. Everyone believes something about Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Not who do your parents say he is? Not who your friends at church say he is? Who do you say Jesus is? And in the pivot point of his ministry, Jesus asked his disciples this question. He turned to Simon Peter, and Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16. Who is it that has been born of God? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. What does Christ mean? We just say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. What does Christ mean? Christ is a title. It's not a name. It's a title that's used for Jesus more than 500 times in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which makes it a transliteration of the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there are many anointed ones. Like we're going to have a new king. He's going to be anointed. Prophets are going to be anointed. Priests are anointed. These are all anointed ones in the Old Testament. But there's a fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king that's going to come. And this is Christ Jesus. The anointed one. Jesus is the prophet who doesn't just speak the word of God. He is the word of God. Jesus is not just the priest who goes and offers sacrifices. He offers himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is the king who has an everlasting kingdom. An authority over all. So how can Jesus... Be one who is the word of God, who is the sacrifice for sin, and is an eternal king. It's because he is God in the flesh. Fully God, fully human. He's the savior of sinners, so very close to us, yet he's the Lord of all. Is this what you believe of Jesus? Is he the Christ? Everyone who's been born of God does. And do you feel the tension there? Well, how can I believe that if I have to be born? Faith comes through hearing and through the word of God. The spirit is active and at work, as Dave just said, busy. The spirit's doing work here. This is God's revelation to us. This is God's salvation to us. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when he confessed him to be the Christ, the son of the living God? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Who is it that becomes the children of God? Those who are not born of blood or the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Are you born again? Do you have a story of being born again? Derek, I sure hope so. But can I know for sure? I mean, I don't... One of my most grievous things as a pastor sometimes is dealing with people who just are, they have no assurance of salvation. They feel like they've sinned beyond God's grace. 
John as a spiritual father, he doesn't want you to, to sit in this uncertainty, this fear. He's like, perfect love casts out fear. We're to have assurance of salvation, but how can we have sober judgment of ourselves even as we live into that there's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus? It's the birthmarks. Our faith beliefs, our obedience in life, and our love in relationships. Look at how these are combined. Look again at these five verses. Let's look at the first three. Everyone who believes, that's beliefs, that's doctrine. That Jesus is the Christ who's been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves who's been born of him. That's love. That's social. By this we know that we love the children of God. That's our relationships. Social, love. When we love God and obey his commandments. That's the ethical, how we live. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. How we live, ethics. How we live this out. These are intertwined, not independent. But please, beliefs... Please hear me. Beliefs and morality and our relationships do not save us. They are the evidence of salvation. Because if we flip this, and please, I want to be so crystal clear, and whatever is the block in your head, how you've believed this in the past, religion says, I need to perform for God to persuade God to maybe like me and accept me. You perform to get God's love. That's religion. But that's not the Bible. The Bible says God so loves us. God saves us. And so we now live this way. This is grace. Jesus saves us by his life, death, and resurrection. We live in response to God's love. We don't work for it. But John does give us a letter here to encourage us, but to also humbly reflect. Do I believe Jesus is the Christ? Is this truly my faith? Do I live according to God's word? Is the obedience of my life in accordance to God's word? Do I love God and do I love others? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. But Romans 12 will say, have sober judgment of yourself, the grace given to you. So let me ask some questions to you mothers on this Mother's Day. Is it easy growing another human being in yourself eight to nine months? Is it easy delivering this human into this world? Is it easy caring for this baby, teaching this toddler, raising this child for adulthood? As our brother said, you never stop caring. You never stop praying. Is it easy being alongside adult children as they struggle and suffer in life? See, the Bible speaks of faith and birth and family language. We're born again. We get spiritual milk. We go to the solid food of God's family, of God's word. We grow up from childhood into a mature manhood, Ephesians 4. So why is it that if it's Growing up and this development is a process. It's not easy. Why do we in the American church think that discipleship after Jesus is something that's going to be easy? 
we should not just have assurance of salvation because we said one prayer at one point in time. We should not have assurance of salvation just because we've joined a church. Our assurance of salvation does not come from just momentary things, but a life lived in following Christ. If we've made a decision, but we have no devotion to Christ, this is not discipleship. If we've confessed our sins, but there is no change, that's not repentance. If we say we have faith and there's no works that accompany the faith, that's not faith. One person has said it this way, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. If we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. And that's sometimes a hard, that's hard to, to preach at church folk. It's easier to go out there to someone who's like knee deep in the world, just saying, hey, it's not working. Your heart's not satisfied. Hey, that, that worldview is illogical. It's inconsistent. That pleasure is not fulfilling you. And you go and preach it and say, repent and believe this abundant life, this new life that Christ gives. But here in the church, we sometimes get so familiar with Jesus that are we born again? Or are we just churched? According to this letter of John, our assurance is from a lifetime of believing God, obeying God, loving God and others. And did you hear what he said in verse 3? And his commandments are not burdensome. Don't, don't feel this as like a weight. Oh, man, i got to believe the right thing. i got to live the right way. And i got to love who? This is not burdensome. But I'm not going to make it easy for you. It's going to be very costly. It will cost you your life to know and follow Jesus. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up a cross. And Jesus promises that those who lose their life for his sake in the Gospels, they are the ones who save it. I have asked you and I will ask you again, do you have a born-again story? But let me ask it this way. How do you envision your death story? The day is coming and will come, apart from the Lord's return before that, that our loved ones will gather around and either have a memorial or a funeral at our death. Picture your own funeral in this space. Either an urn or a casket right here. What will be remembered instead of our life? Your life. There'll be memories of shared life, but will that be it? Of faith, will it be said that you knew the Lord Jesus Christ? Of your life, will it be said that you live by God's word, treasuring it and savoring it as wisdom and light? Will it be said that you love God and others well? See, if we're going to be born again, we've got to realize that death is also coming, and we're not always guaranteed all these days that we think we have. And if death is coming, what's beyond death? And not just trying to get there, but realize how does that change here and now? Is there victory? Is there victory that we can know now in this life and even unto death? 
We would live better if we thought more about our death. Look at verses 4 and 5. Who is it that is born of God? Well, verse 1 said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, who is it that overcomes the world? Verse 4, everyone who's been born of God. And in verse 5, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're born again. And who's the one who overcomes the world? The one who's born again. What does it mean to overcome the world? This is one of John's favorite words he writes in his Gospels and his letters, cosmos. What is the world? Sometimes it's just the realm of humanity. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That was last week, chapter 4. But world also doesn't mean every individual. It's just us as human beings, the human race collectively. Jesus saves individuals, but he comes to our world, into humanity. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But this is not what the connotation here is in chapter 5. World. How do we overcome the world? This is the realm of sin and evil. What has been said in this letter, just in this context, if context is king, we are not to love the world, chapter 2. The world is passing away with its desires, also in chapter 2. The world hates us, chapter 3. False prophets have gone into the world, chapter 4, several verses. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The realm of sin and evil, even the demonic realm. You need to overcome the world. Well, how do you see the world of sin and evil today? I will tell you that the book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. The elites of our day, as they do in every day, are centralizing power in new Babylons and in new Romes. Just always, if you've got power, Absolute power corrupts, and you want to consolidate power to yourself. Technocrats of our day, just we got new technologies today. Technocrats are building new towers of Babel. We're going to unite ourselves. Look, we're going to make a name great for ourselves. Look how high we can reach unto ourselves. Celebrities and, and what we call now influencers are now ushering in a new Sodom and a new Gomorrah. There's nothing new under the sun. But it's it's the same human heart. It's the same Rome's, the same Babylon's, the same Tower of Babel's, the same God of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's in our lifetime, and we're feeling it. And good is being called evil, and evil is being called good. How do we overcome this world? How? There are two equal and opposite wrong reactions to how to overcome this world. Some will try to overcome the world by withdrawal. I'm going to call this the ostrich approach to life. You're going to look around and say, man, there's like lions on the horizon. Let me stick my head in the sand, and then they won't see me. I won't see them. They won't see me. This is like playing hide-and-seek with a toddler. Like, go hide. All right. Like, I see. You're it now. <laughs> Put our head in the sand, not see the dangers of the world, and hope they don't see us. Let them just take out others. Hopefully we'll have more time. 
I'm ready to have conversations about surveillance technology, social justice, globalism, as growing dangers to the church. But I know that many just want to put their head in the sand to quiet, peaceful lives. We are not to withdraw from this world, put our head in the sand. Jesus sends us into the world. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. They hated me, they're going to hate you, but I'm still sending you anyway. This is for the glory of God. This is for the advance of God's kingdom. As it is in heaven, so will it be on earth. Go. You're sent. Don't withdraw. But sometimes we'll try to overcome by just avoiding or withdrawing. That's the ostrich approach. Some will try to overcome the world by counterforce. I'm going to call this the Wolverine approach. Just get angry, get vicious. The world's changing. I hate it. I'm just going, who wants to fight? Like, just get vicious. Claws out. And as much as I can sit here and name names who have antichrist, antichrist spirits, I'm, I'm, they're my, not my greatest enemies. But demonic forces are. And Jesus says, even pray for our enemies. There's no human heart beyond the grace of God, beyond his saving power. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in these heavenly places. It's Ephesians 6, 2 Corinthians 4, or 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So I want to ask you, are you going to be more tempted to be an ostrich or a wolverine? just as you see the world about us. Sometimes it's just on the day you catch me. I'll lean either way. Here's what the Bible teaches us. We are to be both the church triumphant and the church militant. Christ has already won. And there's still battles to be had. Battles with the flesh, battles with the world, battles with evil. This is the already not yet nature of God's kingdom. Is God's kingdom here? Yes. Is it full, complete, consummate? No. But it's here. So we have victory in Christ, and yet we're still battling the flesh and the world and evil. Let me tell you this. If we overrealize our triumphalism, we're victorious in Christ. We're seated with him in heavenly places. There's a temptation to get passive and to say, it's already done. I'm just going to hang out and let things play out. And there'll be a passivity to the spiritual battles of the day. But if we overrealize our militancy in spiritual warfare, we will be, if we overrealize our militancy, we'll be tempted to fight the world like the world. We are both the church triumphant and the church militant. And this is in God's kingdom. A spiritual kingdom that's coming here to time and space, flesh and blood, systems and such, that needs to have effect. But according to John, what is the victory that overcomes the world? According to these verses, what is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. The Greek construction here is of a neuter. I'm saying this because it's, it's, not, it, it's more general and abstract. 
The emphasis is not so much upon the victorious person, but upon the victorious power. It's not the man who conquers. It's the one who's been born of God, our birth from God, delivering us from a dominion of darkness into a kingdom of light. This conquers the world. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, what is the world going to do to you? Take your stuff? Ah, my treasure's in heaven. Take your life? Ah, to die is gain. Man, it's the most powerful. That's power. You don't have anything over me. I don't need this world. I'm just here because he's sent. And I've got some apportioned days for it. I can't wait till he remakes it. But I'm thankful for the time he's given me here now. It is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection. If you believe that, that's your victory over the world. You guys have any Nike clothing? And anybody wearing Nike shoes today? Isn't it sweet to be preached at by a company who tells us everything wrong with our company or with our country and yet manufactures goods in a communist country with genocide and slavery? Do you know where Nike gets their name? They borrow their name from the Greek goddess of victory, whose name was. Nike, or better said, Nike. At the top of the Acropolis, there's a small, there was a small temple named in Athens, Nike, to the victor. So whenever you find the word victory in the New Testament, it's Nike, or Nike. Do you remember the Pharisee who went to go see Jesus at night? I mean, this has just floored me. He goes and says, man, what's up, man? You're, you're, you're different. And then he just, he throws him like, well, you got to be born again to see God's kingdom. The man whose name means victory of the people didn't get it then. There's clues through the gospels of where he did as he attends even to Jesus' body in death. What is the victory of the people? Our faith. Who has faith? The one who's born again. I think it's so curious that the man who came to go see Jesus is Nicodemus. And what was he told then? You got to be born again. What does John tell us now? Those who are born again have victory over the world. Are you born again? Those who are born of God have faith in Christ Jesus. I don't know, Derek. I cannot be for sure. He's given us his spirit, John tells us. He abides with us. Not towards a perfectionism, but do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you want to live for him? You, you treasure his word, and you're going to grow in his word. There'll be ebbs and flows, ups and downs, but God's word is how you're going to like structure your life. Are you going to then so love God and love others? These are marks. These are marks that we belong to the family of God. And it's our faith that is victory that overcomes the world. What's the world going to do to us? Is anything going to separate you from the love of God? Famine, drought, disease, demonic attack, what, death? Nothing's going to separate you. 
Perfect love casts out this fear. And in this fearlessness, this is the stuff that will change the world and turn it upside down as we continue to see the gospel of God go forth and the kingdom come as it is in heaven. Please hear me this, beloved. We don't fight for our victory. We fight from our victory. Quit thinking we need to win. Start realizing we've won. And the more that we realize we've won, and then we then pray for wisdom, like, Lord, how do we even do this in this day? What do we need to do? How do we go? And when you don't just, I, I, I need to pray. How do I need to love? It's just a day by day as we look forward to how to be faithful in our generation. And these words are true in every generation. Until he returns, Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. These are his last words before he started to pray his high priestly prayer. Let's pray.